I like to think about like, uh, if you come up to your cardiologist, would you want to trade hearts with them? And it's like, for me, it's like a psychiatrist. I think a good try, a good thing for a psychiatrist is, would you want to be adopted by them? And it's, if the answer is definitely no, then it's like, do you want them probing and prescribing you things? You know, it's just as a general question. I think that's in like a lot of people that I'm starting to meet, I'm like, would I even want to be in their family at all? It's like, if it's no, then I don't, then they have some, they 100% have something to teach me, but it, I don't think I can really like look up to them or put them in, on that pedestal of like, that's somebody that I want to be like. Happy Friday, everyone. Welcome to another beautiful episode of Movement Matters, a real wellness podcast with Colin and Diana. Our guest, Eugene H. Kim, is a med student, uh, recorder of his own podcast called On Death, which Diana has been on and I will be on uh, not too long after you hear this. And he's a gamer. I don't remember him talking much about that, but apparently he's a gamer. Um, Currently, Eugene trains as a first-year psychiatry resident, PGY1, FYI, in Allentown, and he will finish his residency in 2023. His professional psychiatric interest definitely lies in psychedelic medicine. We covered this in length during our conversation, as well as parenting, mentorship, the need for emotionally vulnerable community, death, and so much more. A little side note, this is obviously being heard on August 16th, or we're releasing on August 16th. We recorded this back in April, FYI, and Game of Thrones was a big deal then. Mm -hmm. We won't get into uh, whether it ended well or not. Curious what you think, but regardless, it was a big deal then, and we were calling our podcast Both Ands. That was before we realized Movement Matters was the best name in podcast history. So still referenced to as both and. We refer to it as both and, but it was Movement Matters. And Eugene was our very first podcast guest. Such a thrill to do this for the first time. He has a brilliant mind, and he's so fluent in expressing how it works. By the way, he's such a young man for all his wisdom. So you guys check the links in our show notes for more on his many projects and enjoy this conversation with Eugene H. Kim. Um, yeah, we met Eugene uh, nearly three months ago, shortly oh, yeah. after we had, or two months. Yeah. Something like that, yeah. Near the end of January. Yeah. Not long after we had opened. And you came in like a, it was impressive. And you just <laughs> rolled right in. We don't see them right now, but your tattoos are definitely... I have in mind to ask you about those because they stand out. You have that one along your spine, right? Mm -hmm. You're the only one with tattoos in this room, by the way. So we're, <laughs> we're going to ask about your tattoos. Okay. And you just, you came in and you're like, this guy knows what he's doing. And you just went straight in. Mm -hmm. And I remember I felt, well, first very impressed and also like, oh man, I, I don't want to make him get out, but I, <laughs> I could tell you like, I don't know what this guy's up to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because we just opened, not many people around here 
certainly, you know, and regardless of our marketing, people didn't know what we were offering in that regard yet. Um, but you had heard something and more people have thus far and love that you came for that. And yeah, we've had it in mind to dig into that and open and, house that mm -hmm. came to what our open house oh, our and open house. jumped into yeah. the ice bath. And, mm -hmm. and I remember you saying, Colin, you were unique in that regard. Yeah. And, and, he he doesn't want to get out of there. Yeah. Can you go check on him? <laughs> and there I walk into the the elements room and you're in the ice bath completely zen. So I said, he knows what he's doing. So I got in this sauna and then you know, I have to say that for all day the community gathering around the sauna which I really love and talking and sharing and laughing. My groove in the sauna is most of the time quiet i love quiet mm -hmm. i love the silence and i love to go in and it's more of a spiritual adventure like um our other friend steph steph was talking like about a sweat lodge yeah, yeah i really mm -hmm. like that mm -hmm. vibe in the sauna for myself uh, usually when i'm when i'm with one other person we go there um but usually when a new person these people start talking to you and you answer and and I was so happy you didn't do that. So we looked at each other. We, we, we acknowledged, you know, hello with our eyes. Mm -hmm. And that was it. That was, I met you in a sound in complete silence. Mm -hmm. And then you left. Even the eye contact, I felt like I was inter yeah. interrupting him. <laughs> no, no, we, we had some good <laughs> eye contact and that was it. And mm -hmm. now I'm seeing you again now. So it's great. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, nobody came like you. It's great. Yeah, I think that cold immersion is very cool in that you can talk a lot about it, but until you see somebody, them expose themselves to the cold, that then you, it's it's sort of like lifting a, a heavy stone. Like it's either you can do it or you don't. And it's like mm. very self-evident in the way they approach the stone or they like lift the stone, you know? And in, in the same way, like how- like An do atlas they, stone or any yeah, kind of stone? Any stone okay. Yeah, any stone, yeah, or anything really heavy. You know, yeah. like it's just like you can tell that like it's very self-evident of like whether or not the person knows what they're doing very mm. quickly. It's just like if they get in the cold water and they don't like lose their mind, you know, it's like they're like, oh, they, they've done this before. Yeah. 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 And then eventually that person who does lose his or her mind will get more change. used to it. Yeah. yeah everything, you adapt. Mm. Just like picking up heavy things. All of the above. Um, you just reminded me. Go on. Yeah, don't look at your notes. <laughs> don't I won't look at your notes. Don't pick up my notes. notes. I yeah, and notes. yes, I yeah. do it all. That's oh yeah that's nice to do Who's that, uh, i just will make notes of something and then mm. ask a question there yeah, yeah. that's by the way the way that uh, the sauna felt we have to say thank you so much to fabian that built a mm. lovely sauna in the tradition of the barrel sauna mm. though we are in a commercial space and he put so much love into it and care he actually even slept in it while oh. he was building it <laughs> yeah <laughs> love and we should make a link to his website on the notes and uh it took him about three days he brought these planks of cypress and cut them to fit and you know all that love and care is so so clear right mm. self-evident when you walk in there that that was the first um, sensation i had when i walked in there before we opened we tested it of course and it felt like a sweat lunch and it felt so peaceful and and then the whole ceremonial aspect of it kind of kicks in every time we use it. Though we don't treat it as a ceremony, I think there's some of that in, in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, even when we literally embrace it as a, a party yeah. venue, <laughs> it's mm -hmm. still, we're aware of what we're doing there. Yeah, we don't get out of hand. We keep it focused. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, the sweat lodge, though, made me think of your. Well, I know you have connection with Bridget, which might overlap here with the TP. Mm. Oh, the TP. Uh, the TP was just one one photo. I was just around it at one time. <laughs> <laughs> but still, not how many people have been to TPs? That's not true. Many. That's I guess that's true. Yeah, in the broader sense. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. Well, that wasn't a ceremony then. No, no, that was just it was up at while I was throwing an atlatl around. A what? It's the it's sort of like a it's a projectile like similar to no it's more of like it's like a precursor to the bow and arrow so instead of an arrow it's like a dart and it's maybe like six feet five feet long and it's got a thrower that you kind of like have it loaded up like that the thrower is in your hand and then that the dart is in your hand and you kind of like wing it like that and it goes uh a little bit further than a bow and arrow would because of the weight wow yeah it's really cool and so I was just we we were at there's a there's a Native American museum in uh, Allentown um, over on Fish Hatchery and the guy there was like we were we were looking around the museum and the guy was like hey do you uh, do you want to throw one of these around I was like yes I do and so she brought us out back and that was where the teepee was and that was where we were throwing the atlatl. Wow. How do you spell that? A T L A T L. Oh, atlatl. Yeah. Nice. I like that word. It's very fun. And then you have to go find it. Yeah, yeah. Usually, it, so that's why it's nice to do it in a field because it's easier to find. <laughs> <laughs> right. And originally, was it to hit an animal? Or? Yeah, it was yeah. for hunting purposes. Good. Mm-hmm. How did you come across that? Um, I've heard I've heard about it, but I've never actually like held one until that day. So that was like the first time I've ever like been able to like throw an atlatl, and it was really fun. How do you feel when you throw one? Um, it was very it goes so much further than you'd think and then it's a so like i was going for distance and it was going like uh 100 150 yards um and it was another thing to imagine like actually trying to strike a target with it because it's you know imagining it for hunting it's just trying to like hit a target with it would be a whole different beast so that was it was really fun recommend it okay yeah most projectiles i'd recommend like if, if shooting a gun is really loud so you can't it's not you know but like bow and arrows or like even throwing like spears is really fun and mm. like just a nice way to use like your human brain in a problem solving context. I've shot a gun in one setting, three different guns. I threw a hatchet, big axe once. You make they make that a uh, something you can go and do in a social setting now. Yeah, in like bars <laughs> with alcohol, right? Mm. Yeah, yeah. I've heard crazy stories about that. Yeah, I'd love to do that. I've said for a while that the main thing I'd love to learn. In addition to a musical instrument, is a longbow. But this sounds even better. I might yeah. have to put Adelato at the top. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. Yeah. I was wondering if you trigger some of that primal energy in you that you feel like caveman. Oh, um, yes. So I I try shoot. I have a bow that I like a, a breakdown bow that I use pretty often. Um, like once now, at least now that the weather's warming up, like once or twice a week. I mean, it's really nice. It's just like a very like they're uh some evidence that like we have been using bows and arrows for like hundreds of thousands of years so like you could argue that our shoulder girdle has like a co-evolved with the with the bone arrow so being able to draw it is such a like it is found in like every culture uh the bone arrow or at least some sort of projectile weapon and so being able Mm -hmm. to like because you like one thing that like high level shooters will say is you don't shoot with your eyes you shoot with your brain um, and you're so like you're you can like look down the barrel of a gun, but it won't at a certain point when you're skeet shooting, it's going to be too slow. 
So just being able like, it's a very human thing to take the, take like a target and a projectile and try to make the projectile hit the target or like a moving target. It's a very, it's, it's something that you don't do in like the op everyday office. So it's just like a, it's like a very special muscle within your, like within your whole neuromuscular system that isn't used very often, at mm. least. I love it. And the angle of the, the elbow makes perfect sense. Mm. It's designed for that. And our breathing, mm. right? Because remember that book, Zen and the Art of Archery? No, I didn't. Uh, it's a magnificent book. And it's all about how at some point you become one with the bow. Mm -hmm. and, and, and you just have to wait for that breath. And then it's almost as if it releases itself because mm -hmm. you're just so in tune with it. You can't push it. You can force it. Mm -hmm. You can't yeah. um, rush it. You have yeah. to just breathe with it. Yeah, and I'm in the process. Uh, so right now I'm practicing archery for the purposes of hunting an animal for the first time. Mm -hmm. And so I want to be really good with the bow before, right. I ever, before I ever put the uh, broadheads on and try to kill anything with it. Where are you practicing? In my backyard right now. That's a good spot. Yeah. All right. <laughs> you and the four-month-old? Yeah, he is more we're so now with the weather transition my lady is very skeptical of baby cold immersion <laughs> or cold exposure mm. so now that the weather's getting better and the sun's coming out uh we're able to spend more time with him outdoors and we could probably just google that i bet people are doing it i bet it i bet it's a thing yeah yeah but it's more trying to convince my lady <laughs> and you know studies are not going to really do that so. fair enough Hmm. The joke she has is she spent nine months making this thing and he isn't even <laughs> out for nine months. So she gets to sort of like, you know, at least for these, like this first period, make a lot of the decisions about his safety. I think that's fair. Make a lot of sense. Yeah. yeah. It's not easy to carry another human no. in you for nine months no. or push it out for that matter. So no. <laughs> I respect her, her decision making power, safety first. Yeah. And then also you can do like toes first. Yeah, um, yeah, we're starting to. And he, we, we, uh, I was very like there were some like, like non-negotiable things about like the first stages with him. So like a non-negotiable for me is he has to go outside every day. And so it doesn't mean like naked out in the the like twenty degree blowing wind, but it's like he has to go outside covered and just be outdoors every day. Mm -hmm. And that also means that I have to go outdoors every day. You know, so yeah. that's a nice rule. Mm. Yeah. that's and a good rule right? yeah. simple rule just just every once a day go outside yeah because i i imagine so he was born at the end of november and i imagine that there are babies that were born on the same day as him that have never been outside you know except for to go oh, out, yeah you know just to go to like a doctor's appointment like ne between. never been walked you know like just right just inside a crater you know what i mean it's just it's yeah. a weird thing to think about like the different experiences that a baby could have already four months difference how was your baby born uh he was born uh vaginally and she was trying to go natural for as long as she could but after like 24 hours of labor she was like i would prefer an epidural <laughs> and so we went with that hmm. yeah got it in in a hospital in a hospital we were like for this first one Thanks let's for an epidural. yeah yeah for an epidural you need to be in a hospital yeah and for the first one we we're like let's because why didn't midwife do this i don't think so no, no, <laughs> they do not. <laughs> yeah, and for this first one, we were like, let's be, let's use all the benefits of modern medicine, and maybe for the second, third, maybe for the third, we'll really talk about uh, doing the home birth. But until then, it's like let's play it safe. First one's always tough. 
Where were your girls okay. born? Uh, the first one was born in my bedroom, mm-hmm. and the second one in a pool in my bedroom. Oh wow! Yeah. How long? How long ago for both of them? Uh, the first one almost nine years ago. Uh, that took twenty-seven hours, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> I know what you mean about the twenty-four-hour marking. Right? Oh my god! It's like a where full was, day's happened. Why like... was I thinking? What was I thinking? Uh, but the second one took barely five, six hours. I had to hold her. Yeah, that second one. The first. Out. That's why we were like, let's for the first one. Let's and then for the second one, let's maybe get weird. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> do some yeah. stuff. Yeah. But I felt like I knew how to do it, mm-hmm. and that that I had that. Um, my body knew how to do it and I just had to trust it. Nice. So I had, you know, I was lucky that I had a healthy pregnancy, though mm-hmm. I was a little older than most women. They recommend, you know, like yeah. after you're 30 Five. something. Yeah, yeah, I was 35. So I was right there at the edge. But if you have a healthy pregnancy and you have, you know, your, your right mind, they let you choose. Thank mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, um, and then, yeah. It's funny because it's almost like a door that once you cross, you can't go back, right? You say, oh, I want to be home. I don't want any drugs. And when it gets long or painful and you think, oh, maybe I want to. Mm-hmm. And then late. it's like, imagine like going to the hospital <laughs> no, and you you're can't. deep in the first stage of labor. It's just like, oh. Oh, and so much judgment. Right? Yeah. Gonna be, why, why, what were you thinking about? Mm. Uh, so it's almost like, okay, you cross that threshold and then you're in it for the long ride. And then I'm going to be repetitive here but what helps you is to just breathe <laughs> and to know that it's a wave the pain is a wave and the pain is is, is a, con- we, a concept we, we can be repetitive and redundant and thematic it's i'm gonna okay. go back it's to probably gonna happen to the breath <laughs> over and over again like because pain is a is, is like eugene it's said a construct. It's weird <laughs> did you have um with your with your mother did she have uh similar birthing experiences that you have had my mom was really young. She was 21 when she had me and my brother, 22, three and a half. Um, and she had us at the hospital, but she had, va- she had vaginal births. But my mom thought I was crazy. Yeah. And my whole family, <laughs> I had to rebel against everybody mm. to, to do what I yeah, did. Yeah, it can do it, even, so like even for us to go, uh, like go into the hospital and do a natural, like try, like attempting labor naturally was like a big push because for Mackenzie's mom and like from my understanding at least is that your birth like a woman's birth experience will be pretty similar in nature to the mother's it's like you'll mm. like this the babies will kind of be the same size yeah. and like the labor will kind of be sim- more similar than at least the paternal side you know like my mom had easy births and we were small babies oh. and this baby was not little he was nine and a half pounds and all of so Mackenzie's mother had really difficult births like like emergency c-section uh, like vaginal delivery with like a hundred plus stitches afterwards, like bad. Yeah. So like there was a lot of like, we don't know how this is going to go. So for that, for her, it was, there was a lot of like managing that fear around it. And then also, yeah, like you said, like getting the anesthesiologist in the room to provide an epidural partially through labor was, there was a lot of judgment. There were like, she kind of came in really mean and it was it was not a great experience but then once they realized oh we're medical students here at this hospital and we're matching here she like really changed her tone because she was like oh these could be colleagues and it was just like ah yeah it's funny how that happens you change your tone once you realize this is a person who's like a human you know um so it's unfortunate let's dig more into that medical student piece because you just said something that was really I'm, i'm curious about the the background for that the 
link between your experience as a woman giving birth and your mother's experience of rebirth. I've never heard that one. Me neither. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. So as the only qualified, well, you're, you are a doctor now. You're uh, in- I, I will have my MD in like nine, in like six weeks. Wow. Right, we're we're going to well introduce you as Dr. Kim when we do this. Excellent. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I, I've never heard. Diana's never heard that. Mm-hmm. I've never heard that. Joe. Joe's in the room. <laughs> okay. Uh, that's, that's new. Yeah, let's yeah. tell me more. No, just that uh if uh like the uh, you can a better gauge for what a woman's pregnancy and labor is going to look like and feel like is more you want to look more at her mom rather than the dude's mom. I have to warn my sister. Mm. Yeah. Just it's like it's not necessarily going to be the same, but it, it's like, you know, my mother-in-law, she had like big babies, like nine, 10 pounders. And so Mackenzie had a nine and a half pounder, not like a svelte, tiny Korean child of like six pounds. Is she pounds. small framed? She's she stock. She, she is much like better framed small for it. Korean. <laughs> <laughs> much better framed for it than like uh, her mother was. Her mother's like significantly shorter than she is. Mm. So it was like just small frame for a 10 pound baby is madness. Mm. Yeah. Thank God she didn't have the tearing at least. Mackenzie, yeah. a little. She had six okay. six uh, oh, stitches. That's still a lot. Wow. Okay. Compared to like a hundred twenty, it's not a lot. Fair. Yes, there's <laughs> right. a difference. Do the math. Yeah. Yeah. All right. What are you studying? Psychiatry. Hmm. Well, I'm I'm studying and all this stuff to be an MD, but then once I go into residency, I'm going into a residency for psychiatry. Wonderful. That's great, and I'm gonna pick on that from your bio because I, I bet I know where you're going. There was a note there that I got very curious about and you you uh, want to go into psychiatry, mm-hmm. right? As your residency. Is it a PSY though? And you were saying that, um, yeah, that you're interested in using psychedelics as mm-hmm. a therapeutic um, alternative yeah, treatment. So why don't you tell me a little more about that? Um, so that there, there are the current state is right now it looks like mdma is going to be com- the phase three fda trial is going to finish in 2021 and what that means is that uh physicians around the country are going to be able to prescribe mdma with for uh mdma assisted psychotherapy so it's not you just get the MD- the, the molly and you roll your face off you there's like uh therapy sessions before during and after the psychedelic experience and that is for the uh treatment with curative possibility for ptsd so mm-hmm. that it, like a lot of the things that we have for PTSD right now, like are like uh, like clonidine, are, are to address the symptoms of PTSD, um, but they don't ever they they rarely cure the post traumatic stress disorder. So um, with MDMA, there's been a, there like one of the studies that they had was like um, uh, people on the study, I forget how many, like fifty or sixty, um, had treatment resistant depression, treatment resistant PTSD, which means that they've been treated conventionally for at least two years. And then they were put on the study with MDMA. And as uh, following the study, the, the MDMA administration and the psychotherapy following with it, um, that about two-thirds did not qualify as having post-traumatic stress disorder. So you could say that it cured them of post-traumatic stress disorder. And these are people that have had long-standing, like, long-standing symptoms un- undertreated by other, normal, other conventional methods. Um, so it's a really interesting field. So that's one aspect of psychedelic medicine. And... Um, 
as like there's also psilocybin or, or magic mushrooms for for um, uh, generalized anxiety disorder or a major depressive disorder. Um, and so there's a lot of really interesting stuff happening in terms of reopening the psychedelic floodgates. And we're not it's I like to like think of it as like when when like in like the 80s and 90s when they started to put uh, kidneys of humans into pigs and pigs of kidneys like pig kidneys into humans like just the start of transplant medicine um i feel like that's what's about to happen with psychedelics in terms of psychiatry it's like we're about we're able to do so much more for some for a whole patient population that we kind of like uh we don't know what to do so we're just gonna kind of let them carry on as they are but and really address the symptoms but not allow not find a way to actually cure the symptoms so with like transplant medicine it's like if you're failing kidneys before we had transplants it was just dialysis until you died and that's really a lot for a lot of people. That's sort of unfortunately what ha has to happen. If you once you hit stage four or five chronic kidney disease, you're 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 either getting a transplant or you're on dialysis. And the, having the option of the transplant is a huge thing. And there are a lot of things that go along with it, but it's a whole different avenue that has opened up. And then like hearts and kidneys and lungs. It's really cool. Yeah, that's a very good link you're making there. Thank you. Um, I'm pretty in, pretty into the the research too, and I I really. Um, supported for different reasons so i've been following maps and i've been mm -hmm. following what is it ciis well, yeah the California training integrative institute of something, yeah something. i don't yeah. qualify for a for a practitioner because yeah. i don't have the prerequisite but you do as a psychiatrist yeah so and, and that was one thing that's really cool about it is how rigorous they are with that yes. so it's like the people that are going to be at those trainings are, are mds uh chaplains and uh practicing therapists yeah, so it's like really cool counselors i think acupuncturists too oh. and that's as close as i contemplated but then mm. i would have to go into that whole new realm of um therapy that i don't do mm. as a feldenkrais practitioner i don't qualify yet mm. uh <laughs> though i'm in very interested because like you i i know that this has potential to not only address the symptom but also the cause of many of these epidemics like ptsd or anxiety or severe depression like even treatment resistant depression uh that is causing so much death mm. uh, or or just you know living death um in our in our society and in the world at large and i think what is interesting is that these therapies were peaking in the 60s mm -hmm. and they got misused right so so they they show their potential they were being researched there was a lot of funding for them and then somehow they, they, they had a little too much fun <laughs> they yeah little, they took they the treats little, yeah. yeah and then people forgot a, a huge element which you kind of touched on but I want to maybe talk a little more, which is set, setting, and integration, mm. right? So, so when you take a psychedelic um, substance, be it like MDMA, which you know other people know as ecstasy, or you take something like psilocybin, which some people know as ma magic mushrooms, and you take it in in a in a context that is not conducive to to um, healing, right? The set you do it at the club and instead of in a therapeutic environment. Um, uh, the setting, the intention you put into it or the reason why you're doing it is completely different than the potential use of it as a healing and a, um, inner work inducing substance. Mm -hmm. And then you don't integrate what happened as a consequence of those, you know, six, eight hours of journeying, then you're, you're taking gold and you're just, you know, doing nothing with it. Mm -hmm. So we have a second chance now, it looks like, and so much that FDA is, is looking into it. 
So what can we do right this time so we don't fuck it up again? <laughs> um, be very patient. And uh, so right now the studies that we they have are very controlled. So like there's not like, we don't know what happens when, like we don't know, if, can we give psychedelics to children? You know, like who are like survivors of, of sexual, physical, emotional abuse. And like they, they're, you know, they can ride it out until they're 18. But if they experience something really terrible at the age of seven, what do we do in that age gap? Or can we treat them? Like, Because the kids are all kind of always tripping anyway. So like, yeah. what would it do? We don't know. But like we don't want to experiment on kids. So it's a very it's a very interesting uh, world. And so like allowing the research to get there on its own time rather than rushing into it. Um, also like, what do we do with people who have any history of bipolar disorder? So that's that like, like a manic episode can be a very psychedelic experience. And like, if you've ever talked with anyone during a, like an active manic episode, they're tripping balls and they don't, and there's no, there's no off It's just mm -hmm. on. And so what happens when somebody has a history of manic episodes and then can you ever give them psychedelics or is it completely contraindicated? And if you do induce a manic episode in somebody as a result of psychedelics, are they never allowed to touch psychedelics? Do you consider them a normal? bipolar if they if they have a manic episode induced by psychedelics it's all, all very interesting so in terms of like well, how do we not fuck it up is just be very patient and, and like let like just let it take time because i think a lot of what happened in at least like from my understanding of of like the history of psychedelic research in like the 60s 70s was they they like got very carried away they, they like allowed their their ambitions to really get themselves in some weird corners like timothy leary like it was just like be very patient and so like a lot of the way that I personally am going to try to get around that is like to stay patient is like, I imagine my patient population to be primarily uh, healthcare providers uh, with like physicians, MDs, uh, like PAs, nurses, uh, like, uh, like people that are not, that are in, in the shit, not necessarily like, like the celebrities or politicians, like any like big, you know, a lot of money can come your way. If you are interested in this stuff, if you are, you know, like as a result, if you look at like ayahuasca retreats, like down in like the shady ones, you know, yeah. like they're, you, down so, in where? Down in like Peru, Mexico, oh. South America, or Florida. You know, there's, there's a lot of <laughs> Florida's a weird place, and so it's just being very patient with like allow not like I feel like we it'd be it's very I think the the psychedelic community is we're all kind of holding our breath, making sure nobody mm -hmm. like dies on a study or like that we're just that this all goes as planned and just allowing ourselves to be very patient with it because it's this is something that's going to take um, the, on the order of decades to like really filter through down to like the people you're going to see in the grocery store mm -hmm. um, and just allow like seeing like those are the people we want to reach and we just got to be very very patient if we ever want to be able to reach them with these with these healing modalities yeah again yeah, i really like that sorry um that both maps and cis cis um are really careful also about because i looked into what it takes to become a um, therapeutic um, practitioner psychedelic therapeutic practitioner yeah, the setting is also very, very, very careful. Like, I don't think here we could do it, for example. You know, we need, you would need like a room with specifics and a way for them to spend the night if needed mm. and uh, a ride home or be able to walk home. I mean, the, the, the consideration about the context is just so, so beautifully planned. Mm -hmm. So I realized that there's a lot of care put into how, how they, uh, um, they are administered and the training that goes along with it and of course that you have to take them to know what it feels like <laughs> right which is not non-conventional for medicine right a lot mm -hmm. of doctors i don't think they know 
what a lot of the medicines they're prescribing feel like, right? So it's easy to say, oh, take this pill and do that. And then I have them in my practice. They've been constipated for 20 years. But why are you taking that? Oh, I'm taking that for my pain here. And they're non-related, right? Mm -hmm. and, they, and, and they don't realize that they're ruining these people's lives with these pills. Mm -hmm. And if they realize and they still do it, I don't even want to talk about it. But um, so thinking about as we give this this therapies a second chance, we are also, I think, paying more and deeper attention to how make them work more efficiently and care for the person with a capital C, right, mm -hmm. which is the main goal and not to make them um, profitable uh, as the main goal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So big pharma is probably not supporting it. And. And who cares? Because <laughs> they're going to be effective, like you said, for the people that are wandering on the streets and, and uh, the veterans and hopefully our teenagers, if we can get past uh, understanding the age, the age requirement. <laughs> Do you think there's um, there's some contraindication for anyone? Like if you have like schizophrenic um, family, rela is, mm. th is there such a thing? I heard about it. There's uh, controversy. Controversy. Uh so there's like what would i say is a contraindication from like what would be a good contraindication like like as a guideline you know that's one thing as a guideline sure like no people with schizophrenia probably shouldn't but mm -hmm. like i think if you were to build a relationship with a person over the course of years and they have either a family history of psych schizophrenia or a personal history of, of schizophrenic episodes like psychosis I think you could find some wiggle room and like also there are different levels of psychedelics you know I think a full day LSD experience would really not do someone good but maybe um, 30 rounds of Wim Hof that's mm. pretty psychedelic right you know? yeah. and that's pretty easy to control and uh, you, you just stop stop hyperventilating and it's over <laughs> and then exactly. you know or um, or like ketamine is a, is a great, is a great psychedelic. Um, and it's got a pretty short half-life. It's like on the order of like an hour or two, it's over. Okay. Yeah. So you're talking about very different things here. I wanted to, to make a differentiation between say MDMA and psilocybin and holotropic breath work mm -hmm. or Wim Hof method. And then maybe side note and talk about microdosing. <laughs> sure and just see what are what are the benefits of them all and what are how are they different yeah so um one so like michael pollan the writer of like omnivore's dilemma and the more like how to, recent how to change your mind about psychedelics uh he he likes the the divider of like classical psychedelics versus non-classical psychedelics and the classicals are like serotonergic um in nature so there are lsd uh, psilocybin and uh like mescaline um those are and then there are the non-traditional uh non-classical psychedelics such as ketamine um mdma um and i guess you could put like uh salvia in there as well so like there so the the term psychedelic itself means like it, it like from the latin is is like spirit opening mm -hmm. um and so i like to use the term psychedelic medicine in terms of like there's a lot of ways you can do that there's a lot of ways you can really mess somebody's perspective up and really shake them up and and uh, get the cobwebs out and it can be a, a three-hour float session it can be um uh taking a, a, a can some cannabis like edible cannabis going into a float for three hours just that is a pretty psychedelic mm -hmm. experience um and pretty safe you know it's pretty safe and uh, or or holotropic breath work the the scrubbing of the co2 hyper oxygenation that can be a very psychedelic experience as well 
And I think that when you're talking, when I, when I imagine a psychedelic practice, I imagine titrating up to the minimal effective dose. So mm -hmm. like starting with holotropic breathwork, starting with a float tank, um, and that just to see what shakes loose, because that might be enough for some people. Yep. If they have some really deep seated trauma, it can really get some get the you know the the dam to break, uh, and you don't really need the deeper psychedelic work, you know, and that's fine because you don't. I, I like I like this analogy, of uh, of uh, tumor lysis syndrome. It's something that when you're treating cancers, uh, it's called. Uh, so it's when the cancer the anti cancer medicine is too strong. So it destroys all these cancer cells. They all blow up. They're releasing potassium, calcium, all sorts of stuff that can cause a lot of derangements in the whole body, leading to like cardiac arrhythmias, kidney failure, and it's tumor lysis syndrome is a good thing because you're destroying tumor cells but it's a bad thing because it has other downstream effects that are your body's just not prepared for and so when you're talking about psychedelic work i think of it as like you're trying to break things down slowly like they, they built somebody who's like 70 years old was sexually abused at the age of three and they they've just had like like nightmare after nightmare they're not you're not going to be able to tear that all down in one session and that you shouldn't if you do you're probably going to kick them off into a manic episode you know mm -hmm. but if you do it slowly start with some breath work and then you go up from there so i think of like psychedelics that you that are more short short term and psychedelics that are more long term so like long term are like lsd uh mdma psilocybin those those are that's a whole day experience versus what are what are psychedelic experiences that you can you can end and so like that's that's like breath work that's like a float tank and then there's also um like ketamine which is like shorter acting but just as uh, just as, almost as effective as the other ones that i mentioned that are longer term interesting yeah there's a there's a factor there because the the long term baby step approach right that these technologies allow us mm -hmm. is, is fantastic and they come coupled with this potential of healing or, or creating deep deep introspection in a period of hours or even days versus what years of talk therapy could do mm -hmm. and maybe not even get that deep mm -hmm. right or or, or to, uh, to the solving of the issue mm -hmm. have you seen this movie trip of compassion no but i've heard out. of it yeah. I, i've heard of it i've seen it and i'm like oh, i just don't have the i've been we're, we're on a deep game of thrones rewatch <laughs> getting ready for the new season so instead of that i've been what we've been you know instead of watching trip of is, that, is that spirit opening <laughs> in a different way maybe? in a different way i've been watching and reading i've been reading game of thrones for almost the, or the song of ice and fire for like a decade now so i'm like i just How want the story to end <laughs> a good name appropriate name that, mm. that's spirit opening in a different way yeah go ahead you had a question like half an hour ago yeah um, yep joe and i are still here joe and i are still here yep sorry no, wait, i get into the tube all i the time. Yeah. i knew and i when i put that in the little memo to you i knew that piece i think i mentioned that you're gonna love that part and it's appropriate you two go and you'll go right back because you're way more connected to the language somewhat i'd say i've read michael Pollan's book i have my experiences they seem like they were lifetimes ago for me except for Breath and fire are nice now, <laughs> elements. But um, no, I, I like watching it. It gives, and I, I'm recognizing for me the question in this context, like in all contexts, is why. So I hear I heard you talking, yeah, about an hour ago, right? Um, about people doing things in a the context. The context is the potential key distinction or one of. But I was wondering, coming back to that. If it's fair to say there's a distinction between escapism or trying to escape, like, you know, if you're in Florida, no, <laughs> Florida, 
or transformation. Mm -hmm. That's the only word I can think of at the moment. And it made me think, okay, true transformation. Is that kind of what we're getting at? What's the, what is true transformation? And I love that psychedelic goes to spirit opening. I love that big notes around that. I like that. And yeah, so I'm, I'm thinking about like, what is the why for this? I'm, we can talk about healing, talk about so the you know the trauma that people can go through that we all can discuss. We can talk about Gabor, but uh, I'm specifically the question that I wanted to get at was what is true transformation? There are other ways we could ask that question, but that's definitely where our, where my thinking is now. That or we talk about Jon Snow or both because <laughs> I. Definitely could do both. I think so. Like a lot of psychiatry, as is practiced now, I feel like it is a managing of symptoms or attenuating symptoms. Like I just don't want to feel so bad. Like that's that's what a lot of that's that's how a lot of people approach their own bodies and their own health. Is like I just don't want to feel so bad. It's not like I want to be better or Mm -hmm. I want I don't want to I don't want to feel better. I want to be better. Um, and that's a, that's, it can be hard for a lot of people. Like, it'll be like, you know, uh, I'll see somebody, uh, who is very sad and I'll be like, you know, do you want to, do you want the SSRI or do you want to like do the hard work of like having conversations with your family about certain things that you need to have conversations with? And a lot of people will, why would you have those hard conversations? Cause they'll get to a better, you'll get to a better side. Hmm. Yeah. So what's on the other side of that, that spirit opening and that do you, do you, are you okay with calling it? true transformation or is there another way we can refer to it that's fair. i'm not i'm not attached to that way of referring to it transformation is a heavy word because yeah. some people have resistance to it mm-hmm. uh, if it truly exists or or shall we talk about improvement or change well yeah is it is it something that's real is it even possible but what we clearly there's a why that's drawing us and others you know we pay we pay attention for a reason you know and i I look at the fact that I always want to know the reason, but I'm just going to accept that it's in my nature. I, I, we're going to accept that. Yep. <laughs> it's okay. Remembering our last conversation. Um, but I think it's important to pay attention to the why. Because if, tran- if the issue with transformation is the implication that there's an ending, obviously that's, we know that's not true. But what is? What is that spirit opening? I love that phrase. Yeah. Uh... I mean, there, I have like my own feelings on the matter. Um, well, you are the guest. Yeah, I am the guest. <laughs> I'm the guest. So I can kind of ramble and say whatever I want, right? Yep. Um, Anything. Yeah, I think that getting to a point of, of like your own responsibility, take, taking responsibility for yourself or and, and like in, in the deeper sense, like I, like being okay with dying alone. Like that, that level, yeah, giving yourself permission to die. Like if you've ever been on a hospice floor, it has a very like labor and delivery sensation to it. And a lot of people will need to need to have a conversation with like a child that they that, like whatever. Like there, there's a lot of people will stay alive until the work that they need to do gets done. And sometimes that happens. Sometimes it doesn't happen. But when it happens, it's hard not to feel like there's something bigger going on. And giving yourself, give, like getting to a point where you can allow yourself permission to do certain things and to be your own weird authentic self or to allow yourself to die with your own, with the dignity that you would like or to have a birth experience that you would like. I think that there's, there's a lot of 
just being allow allowing yourself to make the decision rather than having others make the decision for you. And so there are different layers that you can go through like an onion, just like maybe it's like, I want to take responsibility for my own diet and I feel like go like veganism is appropriate for me. Um, and that's fine. And that maybe that's the only layer that, that, you know, but getting deep, getting further and further out so that you are more, uh, you're a human that's making more and more of your own decisions rather than having people or the broader culture make them for you. Wow. Love it. Yeah. Obviously I wanna... we'll get to your podcast eventually <laughs> on death. I know <laughs> I wrote it down. I want to hear some more about that, uh, dying, um, the threshold again of, of death and mm. how psychedelics play a role there because, because you mentioned something about it, escapism. Is that how you say that word in English? Es well, yeah. So I was thinking about people, you know, recreation. Right. And that's That's different. right. And that's usually the main argument against uh, this kind of... Um, well, psychedelics yeah. can be fun. Like, could be they, fun. They it can be, be really fun. But and that's going back to the setting <laughs> and this yeah. set and the yeah. why are you doing this? Mm -hmm. But w it is research that in, in people with, say, terminal cancer mm -hmm. or other um, terminal mm -hmm. diseases, the the implementation of psychedelic medicine helps them have a better death and come to terms with dying mm -hmm. right so can you talk a little bit about that yeah i think the easiest way to explain it is that if you take a large enough dose of psychedelics in in the right context like you're calm enough um you can practice dying and you can go through the experience of death and you can do so multiple times with a repeat on a repeated basis through multiple experiences and you can get better at dying and that allows that like even just practicing death once can allow somebody to uh, like if they're a terminally cancer, if they're if a terminal cancer diagnosis to go into the final stage of their life with a little bit more grace and more more joy and happiness on a daily basis. And I think that there it's very easy to uh, to to especially as somebody that wants to go into psychedelic medicine and bring it to the wider culture to be very serious about it but also psychedelics are really fun they, they can be really fun and they can be like the recreational usage i think uh right now we need to be very like i said like we need to be careful and patient but also i think there's a space for for psychedelics within a, a recreational context it's just not something that we want to we don't really I, I think like legalizing psilocybin for the state of california might be a little bit brash you know but i think I think if that's what the state of California decides to do, that's fine. But I think that saying that these substances must, like, we must only use them within a specific ceremonial context can create some weird layers there. And also, like, that, that like, a psychedelic experience is only this thing versus, mm -hmm. like, being able to say, like, a psychedelic experience can be very recreational. And you can have a lot of, rec a lot of momentous transformation as a result of a recreational experience. It's just whether or not you can... The, whether the context is there, the settings there, and, and the, the people around you allow it to be. No, yeah, I wouldn't say we want it's either or. Mm -hmm. you know, we are always coming back to this both and. But you, you did something very troubling, which was introduce this concept, this phrase spirit opening, which is not going to go away from me anytime <laughs> soon. So you're gonna, we're going to have to keep going to that. Ecstasy is, of course, it's welcome. We could refer to... I don't remember who said it first, but it's something I'm sure we've all heard that orgasm is like a mini death or a kind of death. Yeah, the la petite mort. Thank yeah. you. That's it. Exactly. The little death. Which French dude was that? Yeah, good. That one. Um, but what I am consistently healthily obsessed with is this understanding and also allowing without understanding too much. So I was just talking about ghosts earlier with somebody today, and I don't need to understand that. Um, the play between that context of play or, or 
ecstatic experience and recreation and tonight yeah it's not to condone nor condemn it's just part of it there's something else too which is this because there's a spirit opening in that but there's some other and there's some other component that we can't just remain in that death state and still do obviously Mm -hmm. so it's there is a balance what is the balance because i love i love how you're bringing this recognition of what you could call mortality to the forefront of your you know it's obvious we that's a normal sort of um indigenous way of growing up if you will Mm -hmm. right to go and see what you need to see so you can live more fully or but is it that is it to live more fully what is that effect that happens and that's what i'm coming back to with this Mm -hmm. transformation or is it some other word you're saying that because we realize that we die say in a in a psychedelic experience or in a in an orgasm maybe so then you you fully embrace your life because you know that you have today this is your this is your experience of being alive today mm-hmm. so it's the memento mori is that what we're talking about reminder mm. of your own death as a way to be alive Mm-hmm. Sounds well. That's certainly sounds like we're talking about your podcast what we're now. Talking no, about. It's like, uh, oh, we, there you go. It's tattooed on his right arm. Yeah. Nice. It's one re- of my favorite reminders. What did yeah. it say? Memento, Memento mori. mori. Yeah. yeah. I think well, it's just having more fun. It's just like, <laughs> as you get as you like break down, like you allow yourself to do more. It's just allowing yourself to have more fun. Like that's a big. I think that's a really big part of it. Is just that as you. The, the people that I feel like have the, the most, like using the literal definition, like the most open spirit are the ones that are having the most fun. Mm-hmm. And it's like they, like they can be doing the craziest shit, but they can have fun doing it. And uh, whether, like I've only met a few people in the medical sphere that have that kind of like they're really enjoying it and they're really having fun with, mm. with it. And it can take it, uh, with the people that I'm thinking of, it has taken like a life breaking experience to go through that where it's like not a psychedelic experience, but it is in that like it's watching your wife die during childbirth. Like and on the other side of that, you're way different after, as a result. And you can have and, and what I like about psychedelics is it's like you don't need to see your wife die in childbirth. You can have you can have a psychedelic experience and have essentially the same life changing moment where you're different afterwards. And it, you just have more fun because you're like, this is this can like this is all not for very long. Mm. Right. Well, that's that's the main interest for me is that because I work with people in trauma all the time and Mm -hmm. I see how trauma is stored in the body all the time and then it can recreate itself. So you keep reliving this trauma, even though you don't even know it. Mm -hmm. And it's lived as chronic shoulder pain or back pain or, you know, some organ Mm -hmm. malfunction. When you are under um, these substances and you relieve your trauma and sometimes it's pre-birth trauma. You know, mm-hmm. we're talking about like being in the womb, pre, pre-birth. And, like the and, water's broken, contractions have started, but the cervix isn't opening, so everything's just cramping Cramping, you. and you, 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 you're <laughs> fighting this monster, and it's like light at the end, but you can't get out. And, mm-hmm. and so, and, uh, and I study um, Stanislav Grof, who's mm-hmm. even like mapped this into mm-hmm. different stages, and it's fascinating. So can you revisit that trauma, heal it, come to terms with it and then come on the other side and then have a have a more peaceful life with yourself peaceful when, joyful and 
fun experience fun of because stuff. you you let go mm. of something that you didn't even know you were holding and reliving on a constant basis i could go all in on fun yeah. i'm all in on fun yeah yeah i'm, I'm all in, in 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 uncovering <laughs> trauma and ghosts that you're carrying with you that mm. are limiting mm -hmm. you on an unconscious level mm -hmm. right and not that you have to have the goal of it becoming or, or allowing for fun but that could happen mm -hmm. that might be what happens yeah it's like i'm plugging joy yeah I'll, that's good yeah hmm. you call it cobwebs it's the same idea it's, it's, it's those things that are trapped in your psyche they're stored in your body they feel heavy they feel dusty they, they take away some of the shine mm -hmm. right some of my favorite things i'm almost done now with life writer which is the biography of lord hamilton autobiography and uh and he talks about the brilliant creatures that we are and we don't even know our potential as brilliant creatures as we continue evolving well some of that brilliance sometimes i see it like toned down in a lot of us Mm -hmm. And it's that capacity for joy and capacity for expansion and vitality and express our full potential. And damn, it's kind of scary when you see somebody really there, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's like, wow, can I, can I be that too? Mm -hmm. <laughs> can I have so much fun? Can I, can I be so powerful? Scary and attractive. Hence, yeah. you know, Wim, we come back to Wim and Laird, of course, and Gabby. Um, they're not all identical, but similar enough in this context. And certainly with what regard, you know, how we met and what Koru is fundamentally about the public eye yeah there's an attraction yeah yeah but for the most for, for the most for some people it looks kind of crazy right when you say that who's having the most fun right the best player mm -hmm. is the one having the most fun most of the time mm -hmm. so it looks kind of crazy right it's like too much because it's almost as if the the fun meter the the the, the gauge is way past the middle and most people are trained to live in the middle or under mm -hmm. so when you mm -hmm. go past the middle it's like whoa are you okay is that okay to be so happy mm. yeah what so, was that phrase you unplugging joy did you say yeah i like that do you want to talk about your podcast mm. a little bit before we leave death yeah, sure. Uh, so I have a podcast. It's called On Death, and I use four prompts for the conversations. I am, before I die, I want, when I die, I want, and after I die, I want. And I've used those prompts for all like 95, almost 100 interviews. Um, and it's been a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> That's I am. I am blank. blank. Yeah. Yeah, I am for... dot, dot, dot. Before I die, I want dot, dot, dot. Mm. And you have your, your guests fill in the blanks? Yeah, yeah. And so it's... Um, by having the structure there, it'll, it's sort of like a Rorschach test where it's like, how do you ap approach a bro uh, uh, an empty page with a pencil? And it's like, I give them the pencil and I give them the page and it's like, what do they do? Um, and so like, uh, uh, the youngest person I've had on so far is 19 and the oldest I've had is like 79. And the ways that those two people are going to approach those prompts themselves are very, very different. And um, one thing that I've started to do is when people have had, uh, you know, psychedelic experiences through life, um, one, uh, I'll re-interview them. And so when I can tell that there's a big, like they, they are a different person than when I had last interviewed them. And so like, let's check in. So for one, for one person that I'm thinking of, I interviewed him. Um, he's a very close friend of mine. I've known for a decade. And then after interviewing him within like five days, his father died unexpectedly. And so we're planning to do the re-interview soon because he's just a very different person because it was a very cerebral interview. Mm -hmm. And I know that when we sit down again, it'll be a very different conversation because 
because he has a real like in the face exposure to death and what these concepts actually mean. And another one was uh, a young lady that I had interviewed in Tampa before moving up here for uh, for this third, fourth years of medical school. She, I interviewed her and then uh, like six, eight months later, she got into a really bad car accident and was in the ICU medically induced coma for about like two months, I think. And so, and so, yeah, she wasn't like, they weren't sure she was going to be able to walk again. They weren't sure she was going to wake up, like all of that stuff. And so uh, I re-interviewed her while she was kind of like in the bottom of the recovery, like not quite seeing any physical recovery, but she's still alive. And so it was just very, very interesting. So being able to track that just to show people, it's like, you know, like these things happen to people, like your, your parents might fall and break their hip, you know, and like that that like what does the recovery curve of that look like and what is that reasonably like what can you reasonably expect and it's like for a reasonable human it's like it takes a couple of years to get over something like that and to move on and to be and to make the conscious decision to be better after after rather than holding on to anger because she got into the car accident as a result of like a very old driver in florida he should he probably shouldn't have been driving and he just like slammed her uh, with when he had a red light like it was all very and so how do you take that and and turn that into something that's positive versus allowing yourself to just become very sad. Mm. Yeah. So it's very interesting. The podcast has, has evolved over the past like two or three years. A lot. Can I ask you how old are you? 29 going on 30. Bang. <laughs> well, just because the, the depth of what we're talking about um, is usually um, distilled over time mm. in, in most people that I've met. So I, I, I love it. I welcome it that more and more people are waking up and just waking up others in a way. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, it's not age related. It's just in my experience, I've met more and more, you know, people that come to terms to, with some of these concepts or um, realizations who are way past their 30s. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people in their mid-20s are just, you know, I, I did the same thing. It's like, what am I doing? Where mm-hmm. am I going? You know, yeah, because looking then, around. Yeah, we don't. Uh, the the there's no uh, the, there's there's a society, but there's no culture. And so these twenty these young children, like these kids, these like teenagers, young twenty year olds, they're they're running around with no. There's like nobody. The people older than them didn't figure it out, so they didn't make anything for them in terms of like how to interact in terms of the social environment. Like, how do we like how do we have uh, emotionally vulnerable friend groups? Like, how do you make that? Like, it, it you can like you, most people that I know don't have anything like that, and so how do you make one? And that's that's a very difficult obstacle because um, that's not something that anyone's doing. So like, how do you like how do you as as somebody who's older or like how do you guide people along in a, in a way that is appropriate and like true to them but also like getting to a very to, to a place where they can help other people along and it's just like that's something that i've been struggling with over the last like year is trying like how do you how do you get other people to wake up it's, it can be very hard and some yeah. people sometimes people are very comfortable asleep yep yeah that's part of why we're here mm-hmm. we decided to plant our flag here in doylestown to say let's all wake up together guys mm-hmm. right it's it's is um it's a call for some of us to just share the joy because we we got lucky that mm. we woke up or we are waking up at some point or we didn't die waking up yeah exactly mm. and and for me also this sense of there's no time to lose mm. i mean done done just wasting my time so i decided to wake myself up as much as i could every day and then uh, and then feeling so lucky to 
hold this and say, why 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 aren't we sharing this more and more because it actually gets better the more you share it mm -hmm. and you learn more about it mm -hmm. so in that process hard challenging process of helping others waking up or sharing the gifts um you get knocked out in the head a lot right mm -hmm. so then so then it's better yeah for i everyone. like the phrase uh, like how do you measure a master uh is it like how hard they can kick or how high they can jump or the biggest stone they can lift and uh the one that i like is the the, the number of masters that they create because if mm -hmm. it stays with them it's not it's like if you have the fastest kick in the world it's like cool but you know if you don't teach anyone else to kick has fast or faster than you then what's the point um and i think that's a very it's just like that that's the way i like to think about it yeah and maybe we have also chosen the the hardest masters to create, which is our children. Because they <laughs> teach us way more than we can possibly teach them. So letting yourself be taught by, say, a two-year-old or a, an eight-year-old is another bam mm -hmm. every day. Mm -hmm. Just wait until June starts rolling. Yeah, it's going to be wild. And he's already, <laughs> uh, like, also what I see is in terms of, like, parenting is it's like, how much am I accidentally teaching him that I mm. don't want to teach him? And like, right. if I if I had the choice to be able to teach him or not teach him, I would choose not to. But it's like, how, how like, why is it? Why can I not teach him this? You know, like, why why? Uh, so like, why, thinking about it within like it's multiple generations of, of like the Kim men. Like, my father was physically abused by his father. Like, was never never had paternal affection as a result of the Korean War, and so the Korean War really messed, this was sort of like the Holocaust, but for Korean people. Mm -hmm. And then when my father, when I was growing up under my father, he couldn't show me physical affection because he didn't understand. Like, how, do, how does a father show the son physical affection? He just didn't know. And so like, how do I break that cycle for him? Because I couldn't see myself not wanting to, but like, I'm like, he's my baby. I want to yeah. show him all the love. And like, how, like, at what stage will I feel weird about it? And then why will I feel weird about it? And then I'll need to like dive back in and be like, what's going on? Yeah, it's funny. You bring a point home, which is a lot of the things that we do as parents is decide this is going to end with me mm. and it's going to end with me for future generations, for my children and my children's children and their children. And also as in a way, metaphysically, if you want to believe in it, we are clearing out, cl clearing back the, ans the ancestry. So with some of our decisions and the way we just, we move forward in our, with our kids, we are not only affecting the future, but also cleaning the past. Mm. I, I choose to believe that works for me and, and mm -hmm. gives a lot of intention to the moments that are really hard and you don't know how to do it and you have to figure it out and, and you say just help me <laughs> universe because this is why I, I decide to do it this way which mm -hmm. is not the way I was taught not the way my, my mom was taught or my dad was taught and um, and I think it's it's worth it mm -hmm. yeah and you mentioned the emotionally blank what was it something Communities emotionally blank. Oh, vulnerable. Vulnerable. Well, right. That's, that's it. That's the given. Right. So that has to be with you and your boy. Yeah. Yeah. And then around that, obviously. How? Yeah. Very, very, very interested in co-creating emotionally vulnerable communities, safe and still fun, mm -hmm. with that true vulnerability and fun. I know Joe is as well. Um, if you need headphones in order to chime in, let us know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I think 
so there's something that I've done recently, which uh, like relating to like how do you create an emotionally vulnerable community? And this is something that within the so con- important. It's very important and it's very difficult. It's uh, what we're talking about, but that's what it, putting a little more specificity to. Yeah, like how does one that do can that? do you, yeah, and a specific thing you can do in addition to yourself yeah. with others. Yeah, because it's it's very easy to go to your cave and be spiritually enlightened, but it's very difficult to be to have that in at a family gathering or with you all like my college buddies. Like it's a bit hard enough on your own, let alone. I mean, for yeah. some people, it's torturous enough on their own, let alone <laughs> with even people they are comfortable around mm-hmm. or that are totally non-threatening, if you will, in their mind. Yeah. Yeah, and so uh, what I did, so we had a bachelor party for one of my college friends. I've known him for almost a decade, um, and uh, the bachelor party was like back in March. Um, it's still March. That yep. was a couple weeks ago. It's couple still, lot, yeah. lot of life has happened in the past <laughs> yeah. couple weeks. Um, it feels like April. I'll yeah. give you that. Yeah, it does. And so what we did was uh, we have these uh, a group of ten fellows coming together for a bachelor party in March, and. Um, the last time that we had gotten together sort of as a friend group. Uh, so we'll have these regular meetings, like maybe once a year. Last, last, last year, we went to the Cape Cod and we kind of all hung out, but I left that feeling very empty emotionally. Like I was like, I don't want to spend the money. I don't want to spend the time. If this is the kind of interaction we're having, where it's very, very superficial. We're all very tightly packed in this like Cape Cod house, but we weren't like really with each other. And so what, um, well, what were you doing? A lot of silly stuff, (laughs) a lot of silly stuff together. And so we, I left, well, like on the final day, one of the fellows there uh, found out from like a phone call that his father was diagnosed with multiple myeloma. And he he ended up dying a few months later as a result of that diagnosis. But he didn't feel in any way comfortable telling anyone else that his father received this diagnosis and he's really struggling with it. And it's like the last day and we're just like, bye have fun it's, it's like what are we doing if we're like spending all these money resources time to, to spend the time together but we're not able to share these very difficult things that are a part of like what it means to get into your 20s and 30s and so i was like oh i don't know if i want to do anything for i don't know if i want to even go to this bachelor party because of the previous experience so leading up to the bachelor party uh we were starting to organize stuff this was maybe six or seven months out and i made uh i asked the groom and uh, like sort of the, the head uh, bachelor man uh, to be like, hey, can we do something a little bit differently? And they're like, sure, you seem really passionate about this. So the, org- the structure that I had was like monthly group calls um, just to like check in on each other, know what's going on in your life. And uh, just kind of like sort of like someone like word vomit for like five or 10 minutes. And then we'd kind of cross cross uh, examine them, ask them all sorts of questions, and then we move on to the next person. And I think it's really important just to give the person the spotlight and also be, like also pass that spotlight in a very intentional way. And we did that because there were also two fellows in the group that were new to the group. So like no one really knew uh, these two guys and we weren't sure. I also want to make sure that we had group dynamics going in so that they didn't feel left out of the group. Cause it's like, I'm sure everyone knows like what it's like when you, there's like an established group of dudes that have known each other for like 10 years. And you're just kind of like, I'm the guy that was also invited. And so how do I fit in here? And going into the weekend, I had, I, I did like an in, we had regular in-person versions of that where we kind of, we sat together and I, I had these deer antlers from an, uh, a buck that I had harvested and we just passed the, the, the antlers around. And uh, we kind of did basically the same thing where it's just like someone says word vomits for five or 10 minutes and then we pa- and then we pass it. And it was very nice to be able to create structure because within especially like 
20 year old dudes there's no structure it's just it's lord of the flies there's no there's no uh intention behind any of it um there's no context for like where is each person emotionally coming like if we're 10 fellows coming together for a bachelor party we're all going to be in a different emotional faces and just it's not that we all have to be in the same space to party for the weekend but i think it's very important to just recognize like uh, one person, he he's an expecting father, and the way he wants to deal with that is just to go as hard as possible. <laughs> he just wants to get really wasted, and that's fine because that's what he wants to do. So, like now that we know where it's coming from, and whereas for me, I had a friend who uh, who was in medical school, and she was set to get married actually this month, and her fiance died unexpectedly, and so mm -hmm. I was just like going into the weekend with like my I'm pretty heavy because there's all like I'm leaving my wife and my, leaving my baby behind, and to do this weekend and uh, I, you know, we're, you're never really guaranteed that things that good things are going to last. And so just like we were all in different spaces and just like acknowledging where everyone is, I think is really important. And so we left that weekend uh, with regular gatherings like that. And it was, I think, a very transformative experience for everyone. And and some people didn't quite make the leap of like waking up. But others did. And that was really cool. And maybe next time after another an, in one year's time with regular group calls, what how much more comfortable and like how much more safety can we create to then the next like the, the people that have those blocks, whether it's 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 trauma based or just they feel weird in the group. They, and, you know, how do you get that going forward and, and building and, and like this relates to something else about psychedelic experiences is that I feel like it is something that um within the the model that we currently have especially with ayahuasca retreats is it's very much like a transaction like it's a, you, you go for the weekend and you never really talk to the to the, the quote shaman again and it's like what if at all if at all if at all and if, if, if they speak english it gets it's, it can be very <laughs> challenging and so i when i think of a psychedelic practice and when i think about these gatherings it's, it's about investing in the person and having them invest in you and being like look I'm in this for the long haul. You're a little weird. I'm a little weird. Like let's let's be serious about this because we're gonna we're all gonna go through. Or be some, weird together. Or be weird together. And and go. How do we go through this uh, experience? To, like how do we go through life together? Because it can be very easy to be like, here's your MDMA and have all all sorts of fun, and then <laughs> see it see again in a year. Versus like the harder question of being able to like, like I want to know what's going on with your life. How did, you, how's your job search going? Um, are you, have you decided you're, if you're going to propose to your lady or not like that, mm. all those kinds of questions, because people will be at different stages of answering those questions. I'm wondering for myself if this is true, but I'm thinking I, I don't know many people and I'm tempted to say, I don't know any who've skipped the work in terms of emotional intelligence by putting something in their bodies there's still or whatever even nutrition work if you will mm -hmm. you still have the emotional intelligence piece if we can call it that that's a phrase we can use it mm -hmm. people have a good enough sense about and, and with that you mentioned age a couple times there and it makes and i wonder this a lot myself of course there's biology and i often think of my own journey in terms of age and numbers and i'm very time oriented in that way but i I think about where is there more emotional intelligence at a, an earlier stage? Like you, Diane asked, your age, you're not even 30 yet. So you can't even speak to being in your 30s, but you're <laughs> certainly mature and can one in high school, so to speak. What do you think about age and that emotional intelligence, basically? I, so like, I like uh, 
think it's something Corcoran. He's a dude that was on the Aubrey Marcus podcast recently. And he has these like different stages that I like of like child, adolescent, adult, mentor, elder. And I feel like as like mm-hmm. you don't there, you don't really need to be a certain age to be, but you generally are. And I feel like within our culture, most people are stunted at adolescent and they rarely ever make the transition to adulthood and they rarely ever make the transition to mentorhood. Um, and I don't know any elders. Like I just don't. Say them again. Uh, we'll go child, adolescent, uh, adult, mentor, elder. So we're saying many people stay as an adolescent. As an adolescent. Right. And Bellingers will love that. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. Arrested development. Very arrested development. And that one thing, like, you, you, like I, feel, I, see, I know I seem like older than my age, but I feel like I... I'm forced into like elderhood because there are no elders. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like I'm forced into mentorhood because there are no other mentors around. And I don't even have, I don't have any good example, like physical in-person examples that I t- can talk to on a regular, like even on a monthly basis of people that I can look up to in terms of like, how do I get to that point? But you weren't forced. Something clicked or happened. Like you, you, you both have used this phrase, waking up a lot. What, what specific thing happened? Something must have happened. Yeah, uh, there have been, um, I, I can recall very specifically one psychedelic experience that was my, that was sort of my waking up. Okay. Um, and it was one that really uh, gave me a lot of like, oh, nobody's going to fix my neck. I'm going to either fix it myself or I'm just going to deal with the neck pain. <laughs> like it was just very much like, that's a very, it's just very simple. Like no one's going to crack my neck and make it feel better. It's just going to, I'm going to have to do it myself. Um, and, or just like learn to live with it because some people have bad teeth. I have a bad neck. It's just like one of those, it's fine, but I can attenuate it. But I, you know, trying to fundamentally change like a part of my anatomy is going to be very difficult. Mm, that's a great answer. Yeah. yeah anatomical component. Love that. Mm-hmm. So two things came to mind. One is that, uh, that there's all the answers we need within. We mm. know that, right? The teacher is within, the answers are within. You help yourself first. You have to love yourself first. You have to cultivate your inner work if you are willing to have any meaningful, honest relationships outside with others, with the environment. Um, you also brought up this this uh, lack of elders, and I think partly it's our responsibility to uh, make up for that because we stop paying attention to the elders maybe not our generation but the generation prior mm-hmm. so we kind of skip the generation or two if you want to think you know traditionally generations 30 years we don't these days i think generation is is smaller i don't know if i'm, I'm academically correct or not mm-hmm. but it feels like a generation is a lot it sounds smart things are changing faster than 30 years mm-hmm. anyhow we used to listen to the elders right um that was the way traditions were carried and 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 knowledge was passed on and we we stopped that that got interrupted and now we don't have any elders because we stopped listening to our grandparents and putting them in homes and Mm -hmm. we broke that chain so now we have to reconstruct that chain and we become our own elders in our community sometimes or people say that to me a lot too that Oh, the things I say, the age I am, and people, you're very wise for your age. Well, age is is is, is a, another construct. Yeah, I feel like it's not like my bar is very high; it's the bar is very low, and exactly. so you're standing out mm. as a result of that. Yeah, and you brought up three elements that I want to um, rescue from 
how do we make emotionally vulnerable communities? And you talked about space, creating space. You talked about communication. So proposing a clear line of, we're going to talk. We're going to have a monthly call. We're going to talk about um, where are we in our lives, map each other in, in time and space. And you, you brought up in a context of raw honesty, which I'm really, really fond of because you cannot have um, a, a good outcome out of that communication in a safe space unless you're deciding to just peel off and just say, say it mm. as it is, right? So, so how can we expand a little bit on that? How can vulnerability emerge out of a safe environment where raw, honest communication is, is set on the table as the main intention? I think it's, uh, unfortunately, a lot of the ways is you show them what emotional vulnerability looks like. Like you just, it's like, it's sort of like two knights are meeting on a road and like they're both have their lances down. And then it's like, first one puts the lance down, the other one puts, you know, it's like, it's that, it's that kind of level versus, and like. It's like Game of Thrones talking. Here. That's a lot of Game of Thrones talking. But yeah. then there's also the analogy of like. That's what they're going to do probably. That's the ending of it. Two knights, Justin. Never mind. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, it's, uh, I think that a lot of people just need to see somebody else do it to ever be able to say like, oh, that's what it is. Mm -hmm. Like um, for the bachelor party weekend, it was like be just be being the first person in the whole group to shed a tear in front of the rest. Is that was, I think that was very interesting. And it also gave them all permission to be like, oh, this is, a, we can, we, there's some things we can just like, you can cry about. And it's like, yeah. And crying gets easier the more you do it. And it's not as like the next time you do it. And so, a lot of a lot of people, I think, just need to see it because, like like elderhood, you just don't see emotional vulnerability in the world. Yeah, hmm. yeah. I don't want to. It made me think of quite a few direct experiences there. Yeah. Yeah. I guess the vulnerable thing would be to mention them. Um, <laughs> yeah, I I can think about my father and being a father, and literally, I just was crying in front of Griffin just the other day, actually, my son, um, and I can. You know, I love my dad, and I, but I can speak very clearly to the number of times that I've seen him cry. So it does have to do with that. I think of my dad now as a, which I guess the mentor, and he, but you know, I, I, a moment ago I was thinking about how we have almost four separate contexts we're coming from. Even though we're all in the same room, we're all in the same, we're all in the same land, if you will. But you have a, a unique background with regard to Korea. You have a unique background background with regard to Uruguay <laughs> uh, to whatever extent being Irish and some mutt of Europe has an effect on me and probably similarly with Joe, you Joe and Catholicism all of these things are relevant and none of us have that sense of elders in our in our respective distinct worlds so much that I that I looked for them outside of my own culture now since you're bringing the cultural oh yeah their background I, I think mm. it's fascinating that because I lacked that sense of mentorship or eldership and looking up to the source of wisdom in my own culture, in my own family, I started chasing uh, Native American indigenous traditions when I was in my 20s, just looking for that wisdom. Mm -hmm. Where is that wisdom? And I found it um, slightly on the red path of the Native Americans and more, even more so through books about, you know, Chinese, Tao Te King. Um, learnings, for example, way far away from South America and from anything to do with my 
culture, but in those readings, I found the wisdom and my imaginary elders and mentors that I that I learned from yes. in my tw early twenties. Yes, what I'm thinking is that the norm, I think unintentionally, like I said, I don't think my father, I love my father, um, but I think the norm for generations unintentionally was to not even recognize it and just allow, just not know. The, the, the not knowing and not even looking at that problem, if you will. As that. a lack. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, like survival was really hard for a lot of our parents. You know, just, <laughs> like it was, you just didn't have the the space to be able to be like, "Hey, how am I gonna crack this next emotional?" Well, maybe barrier? more for yours. Yeah, mm -hmm. I don't want to give mine too much credit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was pretty much similar. Now, mm -hmm. some people say it's harder for us these days. Yeah, yeah, but um, but yes, that you know, it, there's not there's no judgment at all with any of this. It's just the 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 fact that we're all acknowledging this we don't know about things because of that, that distinct um disconnection from the master if mm -hmm. you will mm -hmm. so we did have to go find yeah mm. it's and only recently that i've had mentors really only in the last like three years yeah and something else i'm finding is that like i'll find people that are very good at one thing but they're not like a fully developed human in a way that I can admire. They're good with the autolotl. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> or can build a TP. Mm -hmm. All very interesting things. Or okay. Mm. Yeah, and it's like I guess like a thing that I like. I like to think about like uh, if you come up to your cardiologist, would you want to trade hearts with them? And it's like, for me, it's like a psychiatrist. I think a good try, a good thing for a psychiatrist is, would you want to be adopted by them? And it's, if the answer is definitely no, then it's like, <laughs> do you want them probing and prescribing you things? You know, it's just as a general question. I think that's in like a lot of people that I'm starting to meet, I'm like, would I even want to be in their family at all? It's like, if it's no, then I don't, then they have some, they 100% have something to teach me, mm. but it, I don't think I can really like look up to them or put them in, on that pedestal of like, that's somebody that I want to be like. That's right, That's and great. also because a lot of what uh, a mentor, a true mentor, um, leaves you, it's it's intangible and it's, it goes just by being next to this person and not necessarily even talking. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a choose carefully kind of mm -hmm. thing, right? Who do you want to soak mm -hmm. and feed yourself with? Yeah, true. So going back a little bit towards um, the things that we share because we, I, I've noticed a lot of intersection and maybe this constant evolution and constant seeking and looking mm -hmm. in. So that means keep growing and keep working on it. So what mm -hmm. do you do to keep working on it? Yeah, so this answer is gonna be very different than it would have been even like two years ago or even a year ago. Um, and like last, it's only been within the past few months that I've really started to take like from my own development and trying to develop relationships with other people. Um, and I feel like that's a transition that like marks something. I'm not sure. Is it mentorhood? I don't know. Um, but it's something that's a little bit different. And um, it's very would have been very different how I answered this question back then. But like uh, just making the hard decision every day to take a cold shower is a very simple, easy decision. And it's very easy to not do that. And um, I think that that being in the front half of my day every day is just kind of like, OK, I did it. And so like, I can do a lot of other things if I want to. I just might not want to. And um, 
something that I do very regularly is just try to have earnest conversations with people. Um, whether that is with my family, like I had my parents live with me for the last like week and a half, uh, both my parents in a pretty small house. And so we had some very challenging conversations that I think have really helped them in their brains transition from parenthood of like me as their child to grandparenthood as them as parents. And then also them seeing me as a parent, no longer just a child. And that can be a very challenging thing. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that it's can, I don't think it's very easy for that just to happen. And I think having very challenging, emotionally vulnerable conversations around that is where I'm, is like how I keep the knife sharp and doing that with my friends. And like, uh, so like with this bachelor party, I called every one of the other nine fellows on and had spent at least like half an hour, an hour on the phone with them just to like sort of see where are they going? How can they feel better supported by us? Um, what are some ways that I, I personally can support them in, in the path, whatever they're going, um, whether it's like regular calls or just assign them homework of like, you should probably do this thing. <laughs> and then like, just see what that's like and, and check in in like a week or two or a month. And, um, and I think it's just doing, having challenging conversations on a regular basis is what, how I do that in terms of like, how do I keep the knife sharp is just, just do that because it used to be like float regularly, have psychedelic experiences on a monthly or biweekly basis and um, do a lot of yoga. And I'm finding that a lot of those things aren't really necessary for me now. Like I can maintain this physical body pretty easily as long as I don't try to put too much muscle on. And as long as I, if I'm like fine, if, if, as long as I'm willing to just keep having those conversations, I don't need to maintain the meat as hard. Mm -hmm. And so I can have, have more energy to just have those conversations because they can be more draining than any, the hardest workout you can imagine. Yeah. Well, at, at some What's point that becomes main, maintenance. Third what? Didn't you say you were going to be three? I heard two. Three. Oh. Or did you ask thing. for three? I heard three. Uh, well, all right. Well, let me, <laughs> I heard two clearly, but I don't, I was going to ask if I heard them correctly. Can you summarize the three? Cold shower. Uh -huh. uh, have hard conversations. And uh, that's, that's a good two. Oh, that's ah, a good two. <laughs> okay. Well, I thought, I thought the other one was to create this, this um, calls where you reach out to people and just, you know, you kind of co-create together. But it's mm -hmm. not challenging conversations in the context of your parents, but more about work one-on-one -on -one with other people where you mm. give them homework or you take in where they are and it's kind of like an ongoing project yeah like uh, like more mentorhood in yeah, terms of just like like i'm willing to invest my time in you and yeah. that might be unusual to feel like that like a lot of people how often do they feel like another person is like i'm really willing to sit down an hour with you and just talk mm -hmm. and like see where you're at and that might be something that most people never get after they leave like high school yeah take interest in somebody without a necessary outcome attached mm -hmm. to it just because I care. Yeah. And, and like wanting the me. best interest in, in exactly. for them. And it's like, whatever that entails is like, you know, if you want to just go out and drink, that's fine. It's like, as long as I can keep tabs on you and just keep right. watching and just like, what's going on with you, buddy? Like, how did it feel to go out like that fifth time in a row? Right. Yeah. And I can totally relate to that um, aspect of the floating because I'm an, another big fan. I've been doing it for two years now, mm. and my I think my longest has been like about two hours, and it's maintenance, right? It's just self care. Mm -hmm. The psychedelic experiences are more exploration for me, but still kind of maintenance. Mm -hmm. And and other things that we do also kind of fall into that bag of okay, let me fill this bucket and keep myself 
maintained in my exploration, but they don't really push me mm-hmm. in the comfort zone yeah, uh, right. anymore because I know what to expect of a floating session, though it's going to always be new. I know what a psychedelic session is going to be more or less, though it's always going to be new. Mm-hmm. But when you put yourself in a challenging conversation environment or you take interest in another human and you, you, you're co-evolving together, you are also putting yourself um, under mm-hmm. that sharpener of the knife. I love that image. Mm-hmm. Right, so they go together. You need a little maintenance and self-care, but you don't know if you're ready for that cold shower every day. Mm-hmm. So it is a little bit um, pushing yourself, keep mm-hmm. yourself co- growing. Yeah, yeah. I think that, um, yeah, there's just like a level of like pushing yourself that is really important, and like some things will do that. And there's a there's a line I like from some of the psychedelic communities about like when you get the message, put down the phone. Like there's yeah. at a certain level, it's like you might not need to pick up the phone for another mm-hmm. like couple years. And sure. that's fine yeah. because you got enough of like of an idea of like, where can I go that you just need to fucking do the work exactly. and like spend the next couple of years just doing work the fucking work. Yeah. And there are certain substances that I'm like, I don't know if I need to work with you for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And that's fine because I got I got the message loud and clear. Mm-hmm. And I feel like if I fuck around with it too much, I'm just going to get hit in the head with a with a hammer and now and i'm hitting uh, and like after, as a result of the uh bachelor party this like a couple of weeks ago i'm like one of these substances i can introduce myself back into and see what happens just because mm-hmm. i'm like in a different space and i've done i feel like i've done the work and then like what can you tell me now that is a little bit different than what you told me four years ago yeah. well and that's the whole point and i think that will maybe change your mind a little bit calling about how this can can really serve a purpose when when you receive um, certain messages right or work to do and then you are able to integrate them into your life and do the work and little by little let them become um, transformative in your life and and help you become your best self right so so you may have one experience and then another one in six months or a year because all of, all the while in between them you're you're doing the work you're really taking time to process that and see oh how can this affect my relationships and my my self-love and my relationship to nature and how I see myself and others. And I think that's the whole purpose of it. And that's how they have so much healing potential. And recreationally, it's a whole other um, use of them, which I really don't care for so much anymore. <laughs> I'm more interested in seeing how I can create this, this altered state on a more regular basis with my physiology. Mm-hmm. So living this, the psychedelic experience is just in a healing environment for myself. And then on a regular basis, see how can I take myself there, which is my breath, mm-hmm. for example, or the eyes. I just want to reflect back how I heard it. It sounded like with regard to the shower. Tell me if I hear this in a good enough way. Is it fair to call that connecting with yourself or reconnecting with yourself? Like you wake up literally from your slumber and it's time to do the thing for the day. And it's like, I'm going to connect. I'm going to give myself that moment connect with myself because I know this is going to be worth it. It's simple. I'm going to do it even if I don't want to. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I would also preface that and, uh, before the shower, I do like some Qigong and yeah. I do some yoga and then I'm like, okay, I've There's been a whole not, process. Yeah. I've been like really gentle to myself now and let, now, now is the time for the shower. <laughs> now it's time for the cold. Yeah. It's part of that being with yourself. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing you said was being with others, connecting with community, mm-hmm. connecting with others, whether it's through communication that's a component of work right now that you're acknowledging, but connecting with others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one, two, very simple. Very simple. 
I'm going to be listening to this conversation again. <laughs> I think we're talking about some pretty cool stuff, but th that meta awareness of what's happening couldn't really fully take on because mm. I was trying to be present to what you were saying so I could ask you the next question. Mm -hmm. But these are the most fun conversations. It's the ones you can't wait to have again. And, mm -hmm. and I thank you so much for being here today. Yeah. Thank yeah. you all very much. Thank this you. I hope we get to visit you on death. What? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to Movement Matters. Please check the show notes for more about Eugene H. Kim. I don't know why we keep saying the H, but Eugene. <laughs> <laughs> what a fella. Please like, share, and subscribe to Movement Matters for more conversations and coexistence soon to come. Be well.